Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Usually, if you've been here before, you know that I give you an outline of the ideas that I'm going to be presenting on that given Sunday, but I'm taking a different approach in this whiteboard wisdom series. I'm giving you a, an image, uh, an image of, of a truth that's uh, contained in the pages of Scripture, an uh, image that I'm going to draw here on the whiteboard. We're going to be looking at five images over the course of this series. Today, we're looking at image number two, which is how people tick. We're going to be talking about what's going on on the inside of people that cause them to do what they do and say what they say. So you can use the message insert, which is uh, mostly blank now. It looks like this. You can pull that out and use that to uh, draw this diagram as I fill in the different pieces. I know that you may not be able to see everything as I draw it on the board, so we also have it on the screens. Uh, it'll be on all three screens sometimes. Other times it'll be on just the two side screens, but you'll always be able to see the different steps of the diagram, so you're not going to uh, miss any of this even if you can't see the board. This past week I was um, in the library studying, and one of the places I like to go on occasion just to kind of get away from everything and study, and a couple tables away, uh, uh, another guy was studying, and he just suddenly stood up and started very loudly uh, swearing, and then he just walked out of the library. And everyone else that was around there, we kind of looked at each other like, what in the world? What happened? And we didn't hear a phone call. No one walked up and said anything. He was just in a table all by himself. He just kind of stood up spontaneously, swore, and stormed out of the library. I have no idea what was going on. We were just kind of left shaking our heads. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were uh, stopped at a stop sign, and uh, it was a beautiful day. We had our windows rolled down, and uh, the person in the car next to us had his window rolled down, and we were all waiting at the light, and all of a sudden, this, this guy next to us turns to us and says, I don't need to wait, and boom, he just takes off and runs the red light. We were just, what happened? Why? I mean, just, why? I mean, first of all, why doesn't he have to wait? Why, why is he the only one that doesn't have to wait at the stoplight? And kind of secondly, why did he feel the need to inform us of his decision before he took off. If he's just going to run red lights, you don't usually say, hey, I, I don't need to wait and, and take off. It, it was just a baffling thing. And, you know, this kind of stuff happens regularly, not exactly that, but I often find myself looking at human behavior and just wondering, what in the world is going on? Why, why are they doing what they're doing? So we're going to talk about the why behind behavior this morning. What God's Word has to say that drives even bizarre human behavior. Now, human behavior can not only just be baffling to us or head-shaking like that, but it's more to us than just a curiosity. And that's, that's because it affects us. It, it becomes personal. We're deeply affected by the behavior of those that are close to us. And so we don't just look at our, our kids, maybe, if we have a family or, or our spouse, and just, you know, it's not just a curiosity. Why do they do that? It's more of a, why are they doing that? Because it's impacting us. Or if you're in a work environment, you may have a boss that often you're just kind of scratching your head thinking, why does he or why does she do what they do? And why do my coworkers do what they do? And if we could answer that question and understand kind of the why behind what's going on, we might be able to better respond and process the confusion and honestly some of the damage that's caused by the behavior of people around us. And then, of course, there's the biggest of all behavior mysteries, and that is us. Why do we do what we do? I mean, you've probably had this experience, like me, you've walked into situations fully intending to handle them one way and say one kind of thing, and then before you know it, you're saying the, almost the exact opposite. And you walk away kind of shaking your head, it's like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? You're kind of kicking yourself, thinking, what, what happened? I, I was intending to, to do one thing, and I ended up doing the opposite. 
Well, the Bible defines the culprit behind all human behavior as our heart, the human heart. That's what drives all of our behavior. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything in your life comes out of your heart. What it's saying here, in a sense, is human behavior is, is kind of like, like observing a river. If you stand on the bank of a river, you're just observing only one small part of that river. Because there's a, there's a whole lot of the river that had been flowing before it got to the place where you're observing, before it gets to the bank that you're standing on. And there's going to be a whole lot more that's going to happen after it goes past you. So you're just observing one part of the river. The same thing is true with human behavior. When we observe someone or listen to what they say, we're just seeing one slice of their, their entire life, their timeline. Leading up to what they're saying or doing was a whole set of events that occurred to them and choices that they made that contributed to what we are observing right now. And after we're done observing them, there are going to be consequences that will flow out of what they said and what they did in this moment. But we're just seeing one slice, and we're asking, why? What this verse is saying is it's part of a whole stream of life. And at the very source of that stream is the heart. It is the wellspring of life. Just like a, a river is formed from a spring that, that accesses the water from deep underground and it wells up and it kind of forms the headwaters or the beginning of a river, the same thing that's true with the flow of all human behavior. It's a, there's a source that drives it, and that source is the heart. So the heart is the why behind everything we do behind everything that anyone does. It's the wellspring of life. Now, in the Bible, the term heart is used to describe the the very core of who we are. And in particular, it focuses on on the decisions that we make. It's it's kind of the control center, the the decision-making center of our life, because our life really is the sum total of the decisions that we make. And so our, our hearts function in our life much the same way that the cockpit of an airplane is functions and is the control center of that plane. It's, it's in the cockpit that the, the course is plotted for a plane and adjustments are made mid-flight to, to navigate that plane to its intended and desired destination. Now, since 9-11, we now harden the cockpit doors of commercial airliners to keep the wrong people from getting inside the cockpit and taking the whole plane down with them, like happened on 9-11. And that's really why this verse says... Above all else, you need to guard your heart. Because what you let into your heart affects everything that flows downstream. So you don't just let any idea or any thought into your heart and let it take root because it's going to affect everything. You get the wrong thoughts, the wrong ideas into a person's heart, and at best, their life is taken off course. And they end up just wasting either all or a major part of their life because they're, they're off course. Or at worst, it it can take a life. It it can cause an end, a crash. So what is it that goes on inside the heart? All we can really observe of people is their behavior. We can't look in anyone else's heart. All we can see is what they do and listen to what they say. And even when we look in our own heart, we we really can't see our own hearts very clearly. We, We may feel some things, and we may have some guesses as to kind of the thoughts and ideas that are going on inside our heart, but our our heart is pretty foggy. It's pretty fuzzy for us to really clearly see what's going on. So in the pages of the Bible, 
God gives us a window into the heart. And through several verses and, and themes in Scripture, you begin to see the components that, that make up the inside of this heart. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first thing that Scripture identifies that exists inside the human heart is desire. Inside every human heart are an ongoing set of desires. Now, a desire is just an urge, really, that rises up from inside your heart. We don't choose our desires. They just kind of bubble up to the surface, and we have a desire. We don't choose them. They, they just occur. And our, all of our desires fall in one of two categories. We have good desires. I'll represent those with a plus sign, and we have bad desires. I'll represent those with a minus sign. Every human heart has both. Both of these are always present. There's always a part of us that really wants to do good, and there's always a part of us that does not want to do good. Some days and sometimes there's more pluses than minuses, and other times there's more minuses than plus. And this just kind of ebbs and flows. And, and there's really no way to control this. Ever since sin entered into the world, what's known as the fall, we looked at that last week, the human heart has been a mixed bag. There's some noble things that we want and can do, and there's some really awful things that are capable of coming out of a human heart. There's good and there's bad. So in 1 Chronicles 29, 18, right after Moses uh, had been given the Ten Commandments and he communicates these commandments and some of the other commandments to the people of God, we read this in verse 28, a prayer that Moses says. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. So what he's saying is the, the general response to the Ten Commandments is very favorable. People, if you listen to what was said after that, people are very positive. Oh, we, these commandments are great. We want to do these the rest of our life. And so desire was, was really at a, at a good point. But Moses realizes that what's true of the desires of the heart is they're fickle. They're really positive one moment, and then they go negative. And so he says, I, I, I'm praying that the desire to do your law, God, would, would remain in the hearts of these people. And what he says is very interesting. He says, I want, I want you to help them keep their hearts loyal to you. Loyalty is the ability to keep a commitment despite your desires. Despite the ups and the downs and the positives and the negatives of your heart. And we have the ability to be loyal. I mean, that, that's why, for example, we do things like get married. And we promise to be loyal to one person for our entire life. Now, we don't do this because we will never desire another person our entire life. Now, that the human heart isn't capable of that kind of promise. But we do that because we know that there's more going on in our hearts than just desires. We don't just move straight from desire right to behavior. The rest of the animal kingdom does. That's what we often refer to as instincts. I mean, there, there's an urge, there's a desire, there's an impulse, and then there's a behavior. You know, our hearts are much more complex than that. We're not just kind of a one-button desire and then we behave. That's why we're able to be loyal. That's why we're able to say, look, my desires are probably going to be all over the place, but I'm going to commit to you for the rest of my life. It's because we can. We're capable of loyalty. We don't just go straight from desire to behavior. And that's because every desire in the human heart goes through two filters. We'll represent these also by boxes. 
two filters. One filter is our perspective. Our perspective. Our perspective is how we think life works, how we view our world and, and how the pieces fit together. And in particular, the idea of perspective is how we go about getting what we want in life. So you ask the question, how do I get what I want? You pick something that you want, and it's out of your perspective that you choose a behavior. Because perspective is really your best understanding of cause and effect in this area. You know, if I want this outcome, this effect, what is my best understanding of a cause or a series of causes that lined up together will bring me that effect? How, how does the world work? How, do, how are things connected? How, how do I get what I want? That's our perspective. One example is uh, some people are, are very stingy with money. Uh, for them, I mean, they, they, they find it impossible to, to think other than kind of spreadsheets. They're always thinking of, of how much stuff costs. And the reason is because of their perspective. For them, they think that the primary cause of everything that is really important in life is money. I mean, they've made the link. They've recognized that if I have money, I can buy food. That's the cause that brings out, if I have money, I can buy a house, I can do rent. If I, and they, they discovered how powerful money is in solving all kinds of problems. And, but they limit their perspective to money is the, is the answer to everything. And so, of course, if money is as big as your perspective is, you don't want to part with any of it. Because you might need it to solve a problem downrange. So, you become stingy. That's your perspective. So, for example, in Proverbs 23, we are warned about accepting gifts or generosity from a stingy person, a person who has this perspective on life. This is what it says, speaking of the stingy person in verse 7. For he's the kind of man who's always thinking about the cost. He's always, oh, can't believe it cost that much. How much was it, really? That's, that's just, they're, they're always thinking about the cost. So, he says, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. His heart is not with you. So the idea is, is this person looks like they're being generous. In this case, they're, they've invited you over for a meal, or maybe they're, you know, in our current situation, they've offered to pay for your meal. And it, it seems like a, a genuine act of generosity, but given their perspective on life, it's not generosity. Because they are incapable of true generosity, because to them, every departure of money is a loss of what is the key to life. So they're not just going to be generous. So what really is going on? It looks like generosity, but for a stingy person, it's a transaction. It's not generosity. What, what that means is they are giving a gift because of what? They're expecting something in return. So you've got to watch out for these people because you will loathe the day that you took that gift because of all the strings that are attached to it. By the time they get done pulling in all the favors that they want out of that, you'd be like, here is the $10 for the meal. Please take it. You didn't give me anything. You know, I owe you nothing. Because it wasn't generosity. It was, it was a transaction. The King James Version uh, translation of this verse is very interesting. Here's what it says. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What it's saying is this stingy person, he didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to be a stingy person. What happened is 
he thought and thought and thought as he experienced life, and he came up with, you know what? This is the key to life, money. That's his thought. He was, he was thinking this in his heart, and as a result, that drives his behavior. So what looks like generosity is just a gift with strings attached to it. It's a transaction. So don't take it. So it's in our hearts that we form our perspective, how we think life works, and then we act. Our behavior flows out of that. But perspective isn't the only filter that our desires go through. The second filter that our desires go through are our values. Our values are what we want in order of importance, the things that are important to us. In one situation, Luke 16, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of this day, of his day, and he is, um, he's challenging them, and he's questioning their love for God. He's saying, really, you guys don't really have a love for God. And they're highly offended. In fact, they're so offended, they, they kind of sneer and, and mock at, at what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus says this in response in Luke 16, 15. To them, he says, God knows your hearts. You don't know them very well. Other people can't see them at all. God, this is as clear as a bell. He, he, he can see right into the heart. He knows what's going on there. What is, and this is what he's saying, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. What he's saying is there's some things that you value that are really important to you and all of your friends, but to God, it's, it's detestable. It's like, ugh, makes him gag. You've you got some values in your heart that are very different than God's. Again, they, they were highly offended at this statement. They, they couldn't believe that Jesus had questioned their love for God because, you see, they were religious leaders. They had made the career decision to serve God. So how dare you question whether or not God is important to us? God is clearly important to us. But you see, the question of values is not what's on your important list. You know, is God on your important list or not? That's not the real question. The question is, what's the order of your list? You see, when it comes to values, that's why it's plural. We don't just value one thing, do we? We have all kinds of things that are important to us. So inside every person's heart is really an invisible list of what's important to them. And the real question is, what is more important than something else? What, what's the order of this list? And that's because behavior isn't just the decision to do something. Every behavior is also the decision to not do hundreds of other things that you could be doing. So in order to decide to do something, in order to make any decision, you have to decide what's most important to you right now. Because you can't do everything. There may be a long list of things that are important to you, but in order to make a decision, you've got to pick one. Right now, which one on this list is most important? That's what decisions are. You've got to rank them, and you've got to decide, these are the most important things to me. So... In Luke 16, Jesus isn't saying that God wasn't important to them at all. What he's saying is money was more important than God was to them. That's what he's saying in the context of Luke 16. You see, in theory, we can say all kinds of things are important to us. You know, God's important to us. But in real life, we have to pick one. We have to pick one. And you see, God, where does God belong on this list? Very top. Just by definition of who he is, that's the only position that he 
it should be it is, is number one in our heart. So God's not sitting there thinking, oh, could you please put me on your list? I'll take any position just so long as I can be on your important list. God says, no, if, if we're going to have a relationship over and over again, you're going to have to decide that I'm number one. And that's the challenge for us. We're willing to put God on our list, but to make him number one, well, that has a lot of implications and decisions that we make. You know, in theory, we can say all kinds of things are important, but as I said, in real life, we got to pick one. So one of the things I know about everyone in this room is that God at some level is important to you right now. Why? Why else would you be here? I mean, you decided to attend church today, right? Is it because you had absolutely nothing else to do? No, I, I can't imagine that. There's a lot of other things you could do. Probably other things that are important on your list that are not getting done right now because you're here. So in order for you to be here, the, what that says about you, what your behavior reveals about you is that right now, at this point in time, this was the most important thing to you. Now, it may not be next Sunday, but this Sunday it was. It's the most important thing to you. But what if we offered $100 to everyone who attended next Sunday? What would happen? I'm just guessing we'd have more people. Um, our attendance would rise. Why? Well, because now we're appealing to two values, not just one. We're appealing, as we are today, to the desire to grow spiritually. You know, you're here today because at some level, you want to grow spiritually. I, I hope that no one you know, drugged you, dragged you here, and you just woke up and you're wondering, where am I? If you decide to come here of your own free will, it's because at some level, you, you want to investigate God, you want to grow spiritually, you realize maybe that something's missing, or you want to continue to grow. So if next Sunday we offer $100, people would show up because they want to grow spiritually, but then a lot of people would show up just because for the $100. How would you know which, which reason behind that choice? Well, you couldn't tell. You couldn't look inside someone's heart and say, are you here for the money or for God? There would be no way to know because you're appealing to two values. So what God does in life is he often allows value conflicts to occur where he pits something, life just pits something that you want against something that God wants, and you can't have both. And at that point, you have to decide. And when you make that decision, what you are doing is you are shaping the order of the list in your hearts. If at that point you say, you know, God's not, God's not important. And you don't just do that once, but that's a pattern of your life. I mean, there are legitimate reasons not to be here next Sunday. But if this is the pattern of your life, then, then just what happens without you making any decision is, is God kind of begins to move down the list and some other things begin to move up. Or if you make the other decision where your pattern is, you know, I, I don't really want to be here. Well, then God begins to move up. I mean, it's just those choices shape the list of values inside our hearts. This, this is one of the reasons, for example, that God tells us to tithe. You know, this money and God thing, it, this is a big conflict on this values list. One of the reasons God says to tithe is because, well, we say we love God, but what's also true is we're kind of fond of money too. I mean, I don't know of anybody that doesn't have money on their important list. If you don't have money on your important list, you're, you're in denial. You need money. I need money. So it's on the list. But God's also on the list. So which one do we love more? Well, tithing forces us to pick one. 
to make a valued decision. Now you can say, oh, God's number one, but if it doesn't show up in your finances, the behavior does not lie. It reveals what's true of the value structure of your heart. So it is our values that determine our goals in life. And it is our perspective then that shapes our strategies for accomplishing our goals. And so perspectives and values come together as goals and strategy, and they form decisions right at this point, and the decisions show up in behavior. They're not visible until you do something. They show up in behavior. That's what drives our behavior. So let me give you a couple examples of, of, of how these heart filters work, because I, I really want you to understand how this just applies to everything in life, every behavior, everything that we do. A couple examples. Number one, um, inside my heart, I have some, some really kind and loving thoughts towards people. I also have some not kind and not so loving thoughts towards people. Usually, it depends on what they do to me that kind of determines whether it's more plus or more negative. But my heart is it, you know, relates to people as a mixed bag. I really want to love people, but sometimes people are just, well, they're irritating. And so I, I get irritated with them. But there's other times where I'm really positive. So if it depends on the desires of my heart, I'm going to be kind one moment and mean the next moment. That, that's just what wells up inside of my heart. And you kind of pick the moment, pick the situation, and you might get the kind Bevan or the kind of you know, snarky little mean Bevan. That depends on the situation. That's the way my heart is. I'm suspecting that's true of your heart as well. So a while ago, I was driving down Beach Boulevard. So this is what's true of my heart, Okay. Driving down Beach Boulevard, a car pulls out in front of me, and I have to slam on my brakes to avoid the car. So at that point, my heart goes dark, right? I don't, can't think of a positive thought about somebody, especially this person. It's all negative. And so I get ready to, to honk my horn, and I'm, I'm getting in position as I, as I go around them to give them the glare, the what-are-you-thinking look. And, and at that moment, I stop. And I don't honk the horn, and I don't give them a glare. Why? Well, in part, because of my perspective. You see, I started with the perspective that I was anonymous, that it was me and my car all by myself, which is true. My wife wasn't there. No one else was in the car with me. So I was free to behave any way I chose without anyone knowing. I was completely anonymous. And just as I was getting into position to honk and glare, I noticed a Seabreeze sticker on the back of the window. <laughs> And I looked around, and I noticed, oh, my goodness, it's somebody that I know. <laughs> so in that moment, my perspective changed, right? I thought it was anonymous. Turns out, not anonymous. So because my perspective shifted, my strategy suddenly changed. And I went from honking and glaring to smiling and waving. See? <laughs> Completely different behavior in an instant, just like that. It had nothing to do with the desires of my heart. I was still fuming. But all of a sudden, oh my goodness, here's somebody I know. You see, the cause of honking and glaring was going to bring about the effect of traffic justice. You know, traffic, someone would, the point would be made. That was what I thought initially. But all of a sudden, the cause of honking and glaring 
because I knew this person was going to bring about a problem in a relationship. That's not the effect that I wanted. Not only would it cause a problem between me and them, but word might get out of the church that there's a hot-headed pastor at this church that honks and glares at people when they make mistakes in traffic. And I didn't want people to know that about me. So all of a sudden, my perspective suddenly changed. That changed my strategy. I went from honking and glaring to smiling and waving. But see, my values were also at play in this. One of the things that's important to me is that people drive the way they're supposed to drive. That's a, you know, when you're on the freeway, your life kind of depends on it. So th that's, that's important to me. What's also important to me is that people that I know like me. And in that moment, I had to decide which was more important to me. Teaching this person a driving lesson or keeping the relationship intact. At that point, keeping the relationship intact was more important. There's other people, it's like for them, traffic justice is the most important thing in life. And they will honk and glare at their wives if they're the ones that do it. Doesn't matter. See, so the, given, given my perspective, given my values, that shaped my goals, my strategy, and it changed my behavior completely. Let me give you a, a far more serious example. Every married person in this room has the desire to be faithful to their spouse. That's why they got married. That's why they made those commitments. That's in their heart. But what's also inside the heart of every married person in this room is there are desires in every human heart that can lead them to be unfaithful. No matter what they said on the day of their wedding, that, that, that's just what's true of a human heart. There's, there's good desires and there's not so good desires. Now, some people, given both the mixed desires, some people remain faithful to their spouse. Other people do not. Why? It's because of a difference in perspective and a difference in values. So, for example, two individuals, both Christians, are on a business trip. They're about 1,000 miles away. And uh, a member of the opposite sex presents them the opportunity to commit adultery. One person does, one person doesn't. Both Christians. Why? Well, first of all, a difference in perspective. Let me explain how that works. One person's perspective is this. They think that God is real. Now, not just true, not just an idea, but as real as gravity. As real as why you don't jump off 10-story buildings, that kind of real. That's their perspective. Not just their thought, but that's, they, really, they really are convinced of that. God is real. And they're also, their perspective also is that God sees every single thing that's done. Nothing gets by him. He doesn't miss anything that goes on. So they may be a thousand miles away, but God isn't back at home. He's right there in that moment, in that opportunity. And their perspective of God also includes the fact that they, they know that God controls every detail of their life. They understand that God isn't just kind of generally aware of stuff, but he's involved in the details of life. And they know that God is infuriated with unfaithfulness. That it, I mean, there are very few things that, that anger him more than that. That a person would make a life commitment to one and then they would cheat. I mean, that, that, that infuriates him. They know this. And so they, given their perspective, they don't want to mess with the one who's keeping their heart beating right then. That would be foolish. 
to, to infuriate the one who's your next breath and heartbeat depends on, who if he just takes his thoughts away from sustaining your life, you drop like a, a sack of rocks right there. That, that wouldn't make any sense to do that. That's their perspective. And they, and they don't want to defy the one, even if they decide to keep him alive, that, that, that would then has the potential to just make their life so much harder than it has to be. See, that, that's not just an idea for them. That, that's as real as gravity. That's their perspective. So they're given this opportunity, but given their perspective, their strategy is get me out of here. They don't, they don't flirt. They don't just, they, don't, they, they run for the exits. They leave. But the other person, also a Christian, has a little different perspective on God. You know, they're Christians, so they know that God doesn't like adultery. But they kind of think that maybe God's idea on sex has kind of become a little more updated, you know, along with the culture. And for some reason, they think that, you know, God maybe has watched enough movies, watched enough TV, where he, he's kind of thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe what I said about adultery and sexual things is, was a little bit heavy, a little bit, you know, too much. And God has kind of, kind of updated his view on things. The other person realizes, no, God's, he doesn't change his mind on stuff. This person thinks, well, you know, my God's a little, a little hipper version of God. So they think, you know, maybe God's not as angry as, as the Bible seems to indicate that he might be about these kinds of things. And they also have this idea that, that God is, well, he's involved, but he's, he's busy doing well, he's doing God-sized stuff. You know, he's, he's working on the ISIS problem and he's focusing on, you know, kind of global strategy things. And, but me, a thousand miles away on my dinky little trip, you know, he, 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 that, you know, I don't merit God's attention. He's not involved in the details. And so their perspective is, you know, if I do this, life is going to go on because no one's going to know about it. And so they go ahead and do it. Different perspective, different strategy, different outcome. They also have different values. Both of them, on their important list, is their spouse and their kids. You couldn't deny that. They love their spouse. They love their kids. Both of them do. But for one, there's something that's higher on their list, and that is feeling good. You see, they've watched enough movies and talked to enough people in the culture and watched TV long enough to kind of agree with the culture, cultural consensus right now is that pretty much the most important thing in life is to be happy. I mean, it's, it's not just a good thing to, to experience. I mean, it, it's actually a right. And if you're not happy, it's actually wrong. You know, you're being wronged because you're not happy. So they've adopted that value. That's the value structure of our culture. Right now, at the very top of the value structure is that you personally are happy. That's number one in our culture. And they've been pickled by our culture because they've been steeped in it. And so they, that's kind of got into their heart too. They think, you know what? I deserve to feel good. I deserve to be happy. And that's kind of at the top of their list. And so when life gets painful enough for long enough and the hurt probably caused by their spouse is great enough, they actually feel justified to be happy at least for a moment. It's their right. Because, I mean, they love their spouse, they love their kids, but you know what they love actually most is feeling good. So in the moment of decision, 
that goal is more important than the other ones. And they have the affair. But the other person has a, has a different order on their list. You know, their, their wife is on the list, her husband's on the list, their kids are on the list. And they like the other person, they, they want to feel good too. I mean, they're not, they don't wake up every morning saying, how can I feel as bad as possible? I mean, they, they want to feel good too. But for them, feeling good isn't, isn't top on their list. You know what's top on their list? It's pleasing God. That, that's not just, oh, something I'd like to do. That, that really is their top concern as they move through their life. And so what that means is they're willing to feel bad for a long time. And actually an entire life, if necessary, if that's what it takes to please God in this situation. Because to them, what lasts for eternity matters more. Now see, here, here's the challenge. The moment of temptation comes up at a particular time in a particular day. And even though, maybe most of the time, they want to please God, what if, what if right now, they're upset, they're hurt enough, where right now, all they care about is feeling good? Well, even if the values are usually reversed, if on that particular moment, that particular day, they want to feel good, they're going to follow that path too. This is why this verse says you've got to guard your heart. Because what got into the heart earlier through the culture was, you know what? You have the right to feel good. Yeah. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound right? That sounds right to my heart. I have the right to feel good. And you can serve me in that. I mean, that just feels right. And so it gets into the heart. That gets into the, the, the flow of someone's life, and it's just a matter of time before things like an affair pop up because it got into the heart. They just let it go in there unchecked. Now, the purpose of this diagram is not information. It's change. It's protection. You don't look at this diagram and say, oh, now I understand why I do what I do. Fascinating. Or now I understand why this person does what they do. Fascinating. No, the, the purpose is for us, how, how do we change them? What needs to change in my perspective to line up with God's perspective? What needs to change in my order of things and values that needs to line up with God's order of things and values? And if you're a parent, this is what you need to focus on. This is what changes a life, a heart. This is what God wants to do is change our hearts. Our behavior has real effects. God's ways are real. This is what it says in Hosea 14.9. It says, who is wise? We're talking about whiteboard wisdom. So who's wise? Well, the wise person will realize these things. Who is discerning? The discerning person, in other words, they have the perception to apply wisdom in the moment. They'll understand them. Well, what will they realize? What will they understand? Here's what it is. They'll realize and they will understand that the ways of the Lord, they're just right. They're not just a good opinion. They're, they describe reality. They're right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. See, the ways of God are found in the pages of, of the Bible. And like our ways, God's ways have a perspective about how life works and a set of values that lists the order of what's important and ranks it. Now, unlike our ways, God's ways are not just one opinion among many. God's ways are right. Ours are, well, if they don't line up with God's, they're wrong. They're not just right answers. God's ways are not just right answers on a test, but they're right about reality. 
And so it's the righteous, those who, what that means is they, they decide to line their life up to what God says is right. They're the ones who decide to adjust their perspective and their values to God's. And they get a chance to walk in God's ways. But the rebellious, those who say, yeah, that's just one idea, one opinion among many. Well, they get to stumble in God's ways. They keep falling on their faces and hurting themselves and wondering what is going on. For them, life just hurts a whole lot more. See, we, we tend to focus on behavior. You know, we've got to change our behavior. Or if we're parents, we've got to change their behavior. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Or we say it to ourselves. Or what happens even a lot now is we focus on desire. We see that as the key to change. You know, we've we got to crank up our passion. You know, I, I talk to a lot of people, who are just, they're just waiting to feel something passionate. Because kind of the idea now is you just follow your heart. No matter what's in there, just do it. Uh, that's dangerous. But the real key to change is not the desire. You can't control your desires. Or really behavior. We have limited control of our behavior. What will happen over time is out of our perspective and out of our values, our behavior will flow. So the, the key to change in a heart is changing our perspectives and changing our values. The question is how? How does that change occur? Here's how it occurs. Perspective is changed by personal experience. Not by reading about it, not by hearing people talk about it like this. You know, no perspectives are being changed right now. You still have whatever perspective you walked in with. You might be wondering about your perspective. You might be wondering if it's inadequate. You might be thinking about some new ideas in your perspective, but nothing's changed. Because the only way change occurs in your perspective is you have to actually experience that to figure out whether it works or not. For example, if, if your perspective is that you can walk through walls, how is that perspective going to get changed? You try it. And a bloody nose will inform you that your perspective is inadequate. The pain will tell you, huh, I must be wrong. I guess you can't walk through walls. The same thing happens with God's perspective. You try to do life apart from God's perspective, and you just get bloodied all up. And in the pain of that, there's a moment where you're like, you know, maybe my perspective on life is not adequate. Maybe I need to figure out what God says about stuff. Because this is painful. But you still haven't adopted a new perspective until you actually take what God says in his word and you begin to do it. Not just once. Because you do God's word once, what happens? Probably nothing. So that's the difference between God's ways and the ways of physical reality. You know, you walk into that wall, immediately you get feedback, right? Oh, that's not a good idea. But you defy God's words, what happens? Nothing. Probably for a week, a month, years. Oftentimes, when we defy God's ways or when we obey God's ways, we don't see the fruit of that show up for maybe a decade or more. And by the time it shows up, we don't make the connection anymore. See, God's ways are like planting seeds and harvesting. It's not like walking to walls and getting immediate feedback. So if you want your perspective to change, you've got to take pieces of God's word, and, and not just do it once, but, but be persistent again and again and again. And as you do that, over time, you will reap a different experience in life. It won't be pain-free. It won't be perfect. But you will begin to experience the reality of, 
you know what? God's ways are right. This, this really is, this, this is reality. This is as real as these walls. But no one can tell you that. You have to experience it. Personal experience. You know how values are changed? Values are changed by community experience. What happens with our values is they are shaped. What's important to you is shaped by the people you call friends, the people that you let into your heart. When you let someone into your heart, what you're really inviting them to do is to help write the order of what's important to you. You will, over time, begin to adopt the values of the people that are close to you, your community, your friends. This is one of the challenges in parenting. Is it starts out, you, your family, is your child's community. And therefore, your values just show up in your child. They observe what you do. Actually, your perspective is too, because that's their experience. They see the way life works from you. They see what's important from the choices you make. And then as they move into adolescence, you get a demotion. See? They're happy to have you pay for everything, but they don't want to hang with you anymore. And all of a sudden now, their peer group becomes a new community. And so now the wisdom of a 13 or 14-year-old is informing your child about what's really important. That's a scary thing. That's why it's so important that you get your child young around a community of faith that has the values that God says is important. Because when they move into adolescence, it's too, it's too late to influence that usually. The decisions occur earlier than that. That's the challenge of parenting. And this is, honestly, this is why for adults we offer growth groups, and we do for the, for the youth too. The purpose of a growth group is to, to open up your heart to God's word, his perspective, in the context of God's community, his people. And as, as, that's why we call them growth groups. As you do that, not, not in one week, not even in one growth group cycle, but as you do that repeatedly, over time your heart has changed. And people begin to notice a difference. So I've got a, just a couple of next steps real quickly for you as we wrap up. The first one is, I would challenge you to this week decide to act on one truth from God's Word. Now my guess is this, that there is some truth in God's Word that you're not doing right now. Just a wild guess. And, and you probably have an idea of what that might be. If you have no idea what to do, then start reading in the book of James. If you're not reading through the Bible, just start in the book of James. It's a short book in the, in the New Testament. And just ask God, God, what's one thing that I can do out of what I'm reading? So you don't read the Bible just for learning all kinds of ideas. You read the Bible for understanding and then action. So that's, that's one next step, is just take one thing in God's Word and, and experience it. Begin to do it. The second next step is sign up for a growth group today. If you haven't done this already, I just encourage you. If you've never done it, hey, it's eight weeks. Take a shot. See what God might do in eight weeks. You can use the back of the connection cards to, to sign up for a growth group. Make sure we've got your contact information on the front uh, so you can sign up for a growth group today. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we thank you for the insight of your word that tells us what's going on inside our hearts that describes the mystery behind why we do what we do and why the people around us do what they do. And we, we just admit we need, we need our hearts to be changed. 
our perspective on our own is completely inadequate. We need your perspective. We need to view life and reality the way you have made it to be. Not the way we'd like it to be, not the way everyone around us thinks it should be, but the way it actually is. And we, we need your values to be our values. And we admit that oftentimes, just based on what we do, the things that are important to us are, are not important to you. Many times, actually, things that are important to us are just, well, they're straight out repulsive to you. Help us begin to make choices and to get around people that really will influence a change in our values. And for the parents, God, I, I just pray you'd give us wisdom as we interact uh, with our children at different stages in life. That you would help us to be a part of transforming their heart just like our heart needs to be changed. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.